0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from antiwar.com. This is antiwar news for Friday, December 9th, 2022. So, the first story at the top of antiwar.com today the House has passed this massive $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act. So, that's the military spending bill for 2023. So, it passed in a vote of 350 to 80. So, it breezed through pretty easily. And now the bill is being sent to the Senate where a vote is expected to be held next week. And once it's approved by the Senate, then President Biden is going to sign it into law. So the $858 billion NDAA is $45 billion more than President Biden, than the White House asked for, marking the second year in a row that Congress made the military budget much higher than what the White House requested it represents an 8% increase from the 2022 ndaa which was finalized at 782 billion so 782 billion to 858 billion in one year it's a pretty big jump we're close to a trillion dollar ndaa i mean if you factor everything in the real military budget the real budget to maintain the empire is well over 1 trillion dollars but um you know, when it comes to the NDAA in a few years, it's probably going to be over one trillion. So according to defense news, there were some good amendments that were included in the house version that would have restricted weapon sales to countries that were accused of human rights abuses. Um, and you know, that points to like Saudi Arabia and the UAE countries like that, but those were stripped out of the, out of the bill. And that usually happens like in the House or the Senate, um, in their version of the NDAA, they put in some good amendments. But when it comes to the final version, they, they get, get rid of all the good stuff and just include the bad stuff. So notable amendments packed into this NDAA. Really, the biggest thing, um, one of the biggest things is that, besides the Taiwan aid, which I'll go over in another story. but uh, So this NDAA is going to give the Pentagon wartime purchasing powers. It's going to allow non-competitive multi-year contracts for certain arms, and the authority could be used um, in three three ways: to refill U.S. stockpiles, to arm Ukraine, or to arm foreign governments that have provided support for Ukraine. So, how they put it to backfill uh, stockpiles that have been of weapons that have been sent to Ukraine. So the list of munitions, it's a a long list in this bill of the types of weapons that they're going to be able to produce using this authority. And the list, it includes uh, the HIMARS rocket launch systems that the U.S. has sent to Ukraine, 155 millimeter artillery ammunition, which the U.S. has sent a ton of to Ukraine, Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, Harpoon anti-ship missiles, and much more. Also included in there is the Atasims, which are longer, about 200 mile range missiles that Ukraine has been asking the U.S. for. Those are the longer range missiles that the Biden administration has been hesitant to send Ukraine. But here the Pentagon is getting the authority to purchase these um, you know, much more easily, kind of hinting that the U.S. will eventually supply those missiles. So, of course, you know, U.S. weapons manufacturers will benefit greatly from this new authority, especially Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. You know, they're really the top two, because if you read this list, it's a lot of weapons that they make. Um, and of course, you know, you get the Raytheon board member Lloyd Austin leading the Pentagon. Um, and Ukraine, it, this NDAA also includes $800 million for Ukraine. uh in funds that the us could use to buy weapons for Ukraine, but still the, the bulk of the vast, vast majority of Ukraine aid is going to be authorized as emergency funds separate from the NDAA. And right now the white house wants the Congress to approve a $37.7 billion new aid package for Ukraine. All right. So the next one here now, I wrote up a separate story just about the Taiwan aid, and I know I go over this a lot, so I hope it's not too redundant, but this is really important because it's unprecedented. So the NDAA includes legislation that would give unprecedented military support to Taiwan, a step that Beijing will view as a major provocation, and it will view you know, this step as the U.S. moving further away from the one-China policy. So Senator Bob Menendez, he's the hawk that is in charge of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He said that including this support for Taiwan in the NDAA will, quote, dramatically enhance the United States' defensive partnership with Taiwan by establishing for the first time ever a specific defense modernization program for Taiwan, end quote. So this amendment included in the ndaa is known as the taiwan enhanced resilience act and it will authorize two billion dollars in annual military aid over five years so it's ten billion dollars and this is the foreign military financing this means the u.s gives taiwan two billion dollars a year and they can use that to buy u.s weapons and now the u.s has sold weapons to taiwan you know, since 1979, since they severed relations with Taiwan to open up with China. But they've never financed the purchases. So again, this is unprecedented. And uh, another benefit that Taiwan will get, so out of this $2 billion that they get every year, 15% of it could be used to procure weapons domestically, meaning they could use 15% of the money to buy Taiwanese-made arms. And right now, that's a privilege that when it comes to countries that receive this type of aid, only Israel is allowed to do that with a portion of their foreign military financing. Um, So, and again, this puts Taiwan second to Israel in annual military aid, because besides this FMF, it also includes a billion dollars, an extra billion dollars on top of that in presidential drawdown authority. And again, this is something I've gone over a lot, but I think it's really important. Because this will allow the U.S. to send Taiwan weapons directly from U.S. military stockpiles. And this is how the Biden administration has sent the majority of the military aid to Ukraine. And there are members of Congress who believe that the U.S. should be arming Taiwan just as urgently as Ukraine. Um, And I link there to the thing I wrote up yesterday about Josh Hawley writing a letter to Blinken saying, we have to prioritize arming Taiwan over Ukraine. So this amendment, it also puts aside $100 million each year to create what they call a regional contingency stockpile for Taiwan. And that's basically a stockpile of weapons that will be available to Taiwan you know, if they need them. So besides the funding, the military aid and all that, the legislation also calls for more military cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan. And it looks to increase Taiwan's participation in international organizations. So all of this stuff was initially part of the Taiwan Policy Act. And that's a piece of legislation that was advanced by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back in September. So some of the more provocative aspects of that legislation were stripped out. Um, It included... Giving Taiwan the benefit of being a major non-NATO ally, which would have been a pretty huge step, considering you know that really would be a major um, step away from the one-China policy, because you know they don't under that policy they don't consider Taiwan a country, so how could they be an ally? But that was taken out of it, so that's not an NDAA, and they also took out sanctions. Um, there was provisions in the Taiwan Policy Act that would have required sanctions in the event of Chinese aggression against Taiwan, loosely defined Chinese aggression. Um, but that's been taken out. But still, I mean, you know, it, it does dial it down a little bit because those things, you know, when it comes to the, the Taiwan, China kind of views some of the more symbolic stuff as more provocative, um, you know, like if Taiwan declared independence, that would be China would likely launch a war over that. But of course, the military aid is also going to be looked at as a huge provocation in Beijing. So after this Taiwan Policy Act was advanced by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back in September, Senator Rand Paul, he, uh, he wrote a pretty good op-ed in the American Conservative warning that such support for Taiwan, coupled with President Biden's recent pledges to defend the island, to mili- to intervene militarily if china invades which that breaks from strategic ambiguity you know he said that these policies make war more likely so that's something i always say <laughs> so i wanted to put in this quote from rand paul um, you know saying the same thing he said in this op-ed quote preparation for war may very well be the chinese response to the taiwan policy act and strategic clarity if the United States announces an ironclad commitment to defend Taiwan, prior to establishing the capabilities to do so, China may invade before the United States states can significantly bolster Taiwan's military. End quote. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was a good. He he put it pretty well in that op ed. And so, right now, where we're at with the NDAA. Oh, I just went over that in the last story. I just included it in this article. Um, but also this week, the State Department approved a $424 million arm sale for Taiwan for, for spare aircraft parts to support their F-16s and C-130 transport planes. So more arm sales for Taiwan. All right. So the next article here, the U.S. is considering giving Ukraine cluster bombs, which so this is according to a report from CNN. And it said that Ukraine has asked the U.S. to provide cluster bombs. And cluster bombs are banned by over 100 countries under an international treaty due to the harm that they cause to civilians. They're a really nasty weapon. They scatter small bombs, what they call bomblets, over a large area, making them more indiscriminate than other munitions. I mean, bombs are indiscriminate in their nature, but these ones are especially indiscriminate. So this, and the small bombs that they drop often don't explode on impact, making them a huge danger to civilians who come across them. They're similar to landmines in that aspect, you know, children could come across them and it's just a really bad situation. So the treaty that bans them, the 2008 convention on cluster munitions has 108 signatories, but neither the U S Ukraine or Russia. Uh, are parties to this treaty and they have been used in the current war in Ukraine by both Russian and Ukrainian forces and Ukraine actually used them. They were accused of using cluster bombs way back in 2014, the first year of the Donbass war. Um, They were said to be using them in populated areas of Donetsk. And that does go to show how, you know, for how long is that? Eight years before Russia invaded, you know, the government in Kiev was bombing civilian centers in 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 the Donbass. Um, I believe the casualties of that war is about 14,000 and I don't know exactly how many are on the Ukrainian on the Donbass side and how many are civilians I forget but you know this is a war that was going on for a while. It was a stalemate pretty much from 2015 on but there's still a lot of shelling. So so while the, the US has not signed on to this treaty they have restricted the use of cluster bombs and the last known time that the u.s used them was in yemen in 2009 before that u.s forces used them in the early days of the afghanistan war and in iraq in 2003 the u.s has also given them to saudi arabia which has used them in yemen in their war in yemen So the CNN report said that the Biden administration has been fielding this request from Ukraine for cluster bombs for months now, and it said that they have not rejected it. The administration has not taken the option off the table if stockpiles of other munitions become dangerously low. So basically they're saying, you know, if they're running out of other ammunition, yeah, let's send them the cluster bombs but the report did say that the biden administration hasn't considered the request too seriously yet due to there are congressional restrictions on transferring the cluster bombs but president biden could override them um and you know in any other scenario i would think he he might get some heat for doing that but when it comes to arming ukraine you know everybody is on board with just sending them whatever and these munitions, according to this, was Ukrainian officials speaking to CNN. They said that the they could use the cluster bombs with the HIMARS rocket launchers and howitzers that the US has sent. So they already have things that they could launch them out of. Okay, so the next one here. So the big news today, I mean, it was all over, was that the US and Russia did a prisoner swap. Brittany Greiner, the WNBA star for Victor Bout, the Russian arms dealer. So this happened on Thursday. Griner was, just the background on her, she was arrested in Russia back in February on a drug charge. She had vape cartridges that had cannabis in them. And in August, she was sentenced to nine years in prison. But Biden said, you know, she was on her way home Thursday. At this point, she's probably already home because the Russian foreign ministry said that bout had already turned to Russia. So he's back in Russia. And he was first arrested in 2008 in a uh, DAA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, did a sting against him. And he was arrested in Bangkok, Thailand, extradited to the U.S. in 2010 and sentenced in 2012. So what was weird is that in a joint statement, Saudi Arabia and the UAE said that they brokered the prisoner swap. They said that MBS and the UAE president brokered the deal, but the White House denied that. And they said that the only country that negotiated the deal was the U.S. and Russia. But Greiner and Bout they were exchanged in the UAE at the Abu Dhabi airport. That's where it went down. And Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, she thanked the UAE for allowing its territory to be used for the swap. And she also thanked Saudi Arabia for raising the issue of detained Americans with Russia but she insisted that the countries didn't mediate the deal. So it sounds like they were involved, but I don't know, it's just strange. So Biden has come under criticism for the swap because he failed to to secure the release of Paul Wellen, who is a former U.S. Marine. He was arrested in Moscow on charges of spying. In 2018, he was found with a USB that contained classified Russian Information and he was handed a 16-year sentence in 2020. Whalen maintains that he's innocent. He says that the USB was planted on him. Um, so when the bout swap was initially discussed by Biden officials, he was expected to be freed along with Griner, but that didn't happen. So of course, they're getting a lot of heat for that. Um, but this deal is the first diplomatic breakthrough between the US and Russia since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And but while they were discussing this prisoner swap, Biden administration officials did make clear that it's an entirely separate issue from the war in Ukraine. But still, I think it's good to see some kind of diplomacy happening. Blinken, the Secretary of State, the only time he's spoken with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister since this war started was about this potential prisoner swap. You know, he hasn't, you know, the only known phone call, the only publicly known phone call is that was just on this. Didn't discuss the war. Um, You know, he's really just a totally abandoned diplomacy with Russia. All right. So the next one here, House lawmakers urge for a swift passage of the Yemen war powers resolution. So a group of House Democrats on Thursday released a statement welcoming Senator Bernie Sanders' plan to bring the Yemen War Powers resolution to the floor of the Senate for a vote next week. So this resolution would end U.S. support for the Saudi war and blockade on Yemen that has killed at least 377,000 people. And that's a very conservative estimate from the UN. And that's as of the end of 2021. So Um, And more than half of that number are children under the age of five. It's just a brutal, brutal war. But Rep. uh, Adam Schiff uh, was included in this statement, and he is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. So I think that's pretty significant. And they uh, urged in the statement for the Senate to, quote, swiftly pass this legislation with a strong majority and send it to the House for quick adoption and then to the president's desk for his signature before the end of the 117th Congress, end quote. So they're saying, let's get this done, let's do it now. So I think it, this is encouraging. And the lawmakers who joined Schiff, um, these are Democrats, Ro Khanna, Peter DeFazio, Jim McGovern, Ted Lieu, Debbie Dingell, and Pramila, Pramila Jayapel. So the resolution directs, so basically what this resolution does it directs the removal of us armed forces from hostilities in yemen that have not been authorized by congress so the us involvement in the war includes providing intelligence and logistic support you know, and for the saudi operations against the houthis and the maintenance of saudi warplanes and because of that the resolution defines hostilities as you know that type of support not just being directly involved you know us troops fighting on the ground it's providing all this logistics and stuff Um, so, you know, there's always going to be a loophole if president Biden wanted to continue the war, even if this passed and and he signed it, you know, I'm sure he could find his loophole, but this is good. I mean, it, it, it'll put pressure on him to end it. And these Democrats say in this statement, you know, they're mad at Saudi Arabia. They're not happy because of their oil cuts, the OPEC plus oil cuts. So they're saying that this can help the Biden administration's goal of recalibrating the U S Saudi relationship. Um, so we will see what happens with this. Hopefully it comes to a vote and this happens very quick. And then one way that we could put pressure on Congress is by calling one, eight, three, three, stop war. And that will connect you to your senators and representatives. You go to one, eight, three, three, stop com and find information on all that there. And it gives you prompts of what to say. I mean, this is really important. Um, you know, it's not something we hear about much anymore because the violence has been down, but the blockade is still being enforced. And this will end it because right now there haven't been Saudi airstrikes in months and months, which is great. But at any time it could it could, you know, pop off again and they could start really bombing the country. And we know that the, this cap coalition, this U.S.-backed coalition, notorious for killing civilians, bombing uh, civilian homes and infrastructure and just such a brutal war. Okay, the next one here, Finland does not know when Turkey is going to approve its NATO bid. So Finland's foreign minister said on Thursday he was in Washington, he met with Blinken. He said that while there's been progress on alleviating Turkey's concerns on Finland and Sweden joining NATO, he said there's still no clear date on when Ankara will ratify their memberships. So he said that he's hoping the their membership is approved ahead of Turkey's presidential election, which is going to be held in 2023. So also on Thursday, Western officials told the New York Times that they fear that Erdogan, the Turkish president, may be willing to delay Sweden and Finland's NATO bids for several more months, or in what they called the nightmare scenario, he could block them entirely, um, which would be nice, because uh, you know. This would bring NATO, you know. Finland has an 800 mile border, over 800 mile border with Russia. You know, it would really expand NATO right next to Russia. Blinken, uh, he was more optimistic on Thursday and he said that Turkey's concerns are being addressed and that he expects the Nordic nations will join the alliance soon. Uh, As I've covered a lot, Erdogan's main concerns are over Sweden and Finland's alleged support for the PKK, which is that Kurdish militant group that they consider a terrorist organization. As well, the US and the EU have also labeled them as a terrorist organization. Sweden extradited a Kurdish man to Turkey last week who sought asylum in Sweden after being convicted in Turkey for alleged ties to the PKK. Turkey was happy about that extradition, but they want to see more. Um, So... You know, we'll see how this develops. But it does seem like uh I think Erdogan, you know, he's not gonna he's gonna try to get a lot of concessions out of them before he approves it. All right, so the last story here in the news section is actually from the uh the New York Times and it's an interesting story all about global spyware. And it but it reveals something pretty big. So the Pegasus scandal from the NSO group the, that's an Israeli firm, Pegasus spyware that um, has been used all over the world, super intrusive. They call it zero-click technology because people don't have to click on any kind of link to get it installed into their phone. They could just put it in people's phone, turn their phone into a spying device, record you, track where you go. Um, but the Biden administration has blacklisted this NSO group, but U S federal agencies are still using Israeli spyware and revealed in this story is the fact that the drug enforcement administration, the DEA is secretly deploying spyware from a different Israeli firm. And this is, um, a different kind of spyware that they're using. I believe it's called predator. It's not as, uh, intrusive as the NSO, as the Pegasus, um, they can extract anything that's on some stored in your cloud on your phone, not necessarily what's what's actually in the phone itself. Um, but still, this is a, a pretty big revelation, and there's a ton of details. It's a very extensive report, so if you want to go check that out, you could read it. We link to a a version that you could get past the New York Times paywall, the archive version. But that's it for me for the news. Uh, we have. Good viewpoints as always. We have one from Ted Snyder about what Macron said the other day about how Russia, you know, needs security guarantees to end the war in Ukraine, which is very interesting. One from William J. Astor, beware of the long wars. You know, just about how Ukrainian attacks on Russia deep inside Russia are escalatory and dangerous. Oh, there's a really good one. If you want, like, kind of background on Yemen and what the situation is there, this is from uh, Anel Sheline and Hassan El-Tayyab. And they're real experts on the war in Yemen, and they do a lot of really good work on it. Um, so go check that out. It's titled What Congress Needs to Know About the Truce in Yemen. And then one from Daniel Larison over at his substack, The Impunity of Sanctions Advocates. Advocates. Basically... Um, how people that push for sanctions, which is just a failed policy that does nothing but hurt innocent people, never face any sort of uh, cost for pushing that policy. But that's it for me for today. Uh, That's it for the week, actually. It's Friday. So I'll talk to you after the weekend. Um, You can like and subscribe on YouTube and Odyssey and Rumble if you want the video. Download the show wherever you listen to podcasts if you want to listen to it in your car or something. Um. Yeah, and share the show. Tell your friends. You can buy antiwar.com merch in the link down below. I'll uh. I'll catch you after the weekend. Thanks for listening.